This is Julie Wrench with another episode of On the Shoulders of Giants, Talking Old Timers with Thomas. And we are brought to you by Monster X Radio and Sasquatch Coffee. Have you tried it yet, T? So I'll tell you what, we have one heck of a show for you guys tonight, something I'm really stoked about. Um, first, let me bring on the the man, the only man of the Bigfoot world, I'm just always harassing him. Mr. Thomas Seawood, T- Thomas Steenberg, how are you? Hello, Julie. How are you today? I'm not bad. I'm uh, actually kind of warm for a change. We've been up in the 70s this week. Oh, I'm absolutely ecstatic. You know why? Why? Because I'm not the only old-timer on the show tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we have... Quite the guest. Um, actually, it's a very personal friend of yours, somebody that you know um, and have for a long time. And the person that we have on the show tonight is someone who has been doing this, like Thomas said, for a very long time. Has some of the best audio um, that has ever been uh, analyzed. And uh, let me go ahead and introduce to you now Mr. Ron Moorhead. Well, good evening, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> How you doing, Ron? Well, I'm doing great. It's not 70 degrees here, though. I'm in Washington, and it's cold here. <laughs> I'm not going to throw a rock and hit Canada, though, if that's any consolation. Yeah. So you uh, two have known each other for a good while. Well, yeah. Tom and I have spoke together at different conferences, and I, I met him years ago. And we actually was on an expedition on a boat uh in 2016, I think that may have been. No, I seen you in, in a, a conference in uh, here in Washington since then. Haven't I, Tom? Yeah, we spent yeah, a week have, out on. A, we spent been a week able out to on a to, boat. Yep. Called Operation. I haven't been Seaman. able to go to too many conferences in the state since the border closed <clears> because <throat> of COVID. But right, well, they've stopped anyway. They pretty much limited the conference. They're just starting to back up this year. Uh, Scheduled for a few now, but uh, this whole last part since about well, since COVID really started, they closed down a lot of stuff down, so we couldn't mm-hmm. even do them here. We had to do virtual virtual uh, conferences with Zoom or or one of those uh, Skypes or something. Mm-hmm. So it's been an interesting year, that's for sure. Oh yeah, and I know you two were on that uh, Operation Sea Monkey um, uh-huh. with uh, Gunner and Thomas. Seawood and you guys, and I'm trying to think who else it was. Todd Neese. Oh, that's right, yeah, Todd. Todd. How can I forget? <clears throat> um, which I was extremely jealous about because I wanted to be on it, but you know, <laughs> no such luck. But uh, yeah, that was that was pretty cool. I I remember hearing all about that and. Listening to the the show that Gunner had did about it, and um, looking at all the pictures and very cool stuff. But uh, Ron, I wanted to to ask you though, because I know you've been involved in this a long time. How did you get started with all this? Were you um, in, in, intrigued about the Bigfoot world or the Bigfoot creature? I mean, how how did the, did this start for you? 
<clears throat> well, uh, Julie, not none of that. I, I wasn't involved in Bigfoot at all. Uh, what had happened was uh, a couple of guys that I knew uh, were involved with a, a group of five total, but two of them uh, were hunters, and they went to their hunting camp. They'd been busy since the 50s. And uh, these things came around their shelter, and the, the shelter just a makeshift uh, log, lean to like thing with a uh, cable wrapped around a group of trees. And uh, they went in for the night, and these things just started coming around. At first, they thought it was just a big bear or something. Then they realized the sounds weren't a bear at all. And uh, the avid hunters uh, were eight miles in the wilderness, 8,400 feet in elevation. It's a campsite in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And uh, they came out and told the other guys about it. They all went back up. They took tape recorders again, or not again, but for the first time. And uh, these things came around again. And uh, they saw their tracks in the mud. Uh, they knew that they they weren't being played with. There really nobody gets back in there that far anyway. It's a pretty imposing strip, pretty imposing area to get to. So uh, they came out. Uh, well, one of the guys <laughs> that night, he uh, these things came around and it just freaked him out so bad he was just uh, scared, so he couldn't hold his mouth, jarring. He got up the next morning as soon as it hit daylight, and he left him a note and said, I'm out of here, and he shot out of there and went back home down to the valley where, where I lived, and I was, a, like I say, a friend of all, all, of all of them. And uh, anyway, uh, the guys didn't come back the next day like they were supposed to. And uh, the wives were all worried because they'd already heard the story from the Johnson brothers who went up there originally. And uh, they was concerned that... Uh, Something happened to the guys because they didn't know what they were dealing with. If it was a monster, or eat them, or just what it was. But um, Donald told them, no, what Johnson says is true. There's something spooky up there. But he wasn't going to go back. He, told him, he wouldn't go back by himself and check on the guys. So he asked me to go with him. And that's how I got involved. I, I went up wow. there. Wow. Not knowing, uh, not knowing what we're in for, and not knowing if it was, like I say in my book, it was a one-way trip or, or if it was a rescue mission right. or, or just what it was. So uh, anyway, we made it. It was really he almost, he's like a mule, this Donald was. I, I thought I was in good shape. But when you leave the, the almost, uh, well, the altitude of 155 feet in the San Joaquin Valley and shoot up to to the uh, 10,000 feet mark where you got to go to the get back down into 8,400 feet to the camp, uh, air gets pretty light up there. You're not as good shape as you think you are. <laughs> so he just about knocked me out. But we got up there. The guys were okay. And uh, that was the good, the good news. And I got to see a track, and, and I got to hear the sounds that they had recorded. And uh, anyway, uh, came out, and as soon as I – because I was involved in the group then because they knew I, I knew where their camp was, and, and they trusted me because they knew me. So I uh, I became a hunter that winter. I, I got me a rifle and started got a horse and everything. It was got ready for it. <laughs> so that's how I got involved in it. And this went on uh, with us. We started having these things coming around the camp after dark, and uh, they just uh, making these sounds. And uh, it wasn't until 1972 because the winter of 1971 is uh, we had well we had all this time because we couldn't get up there because of the snow load. So. Uh, Warren Johnson, the leader of the group, he wrote to Ivan Sanderson a letter, a 23-page handwritten letter. And Ivan Sanderson read it and thought it was probably a hoax. No one's going to do something like this. It happened. So he sent it to Peter Byrne out in Oregon. And Peter thought the same thing. And I I didn't know this at the time, but I read the correspondence between them later on. And uh, Peter uh, got a hold of Alan Berry, who lived in California, working in Redding, actually, California. And Alan Berry was a reporter at the time and he came down and interviewed us and got kind of intrigued by it when he heard the sound. So he thought, well, if this is real, well, we're going to get to the bottom of it. And uh, he was actually looking for a hoax himself, though. So that's, uh, that's, I didn't know that either until later on, but he was going through our sacks when we was out walking and he was looking all over who could be pulling this off way up here in the middle of nowhere. But uh, he never, we never, he never could establish the hoax. And he, wrote a book, actually co-written a book with Ann Slate, uh, 1978, I think it was. And uh, he had uh, talked about what he what he went through trying to figure out what was going on with us. It's the first three chapters of that book. It's called Bigfoot, and uh, uh, it's dedicated just to our camp and our story. So that's kind of the, wow. 
beginning of it all for me, and it goes on from there. You know, he he actually fostered the sounds because he ended up recording them too. And he got the University of Wyoming to look at them. A doctor, Professor Curlin, professor of electrical engineering, to establish that the, if it was credible, and uh, we kind of knew it was because nobody could be messing with us way up there in the middle of nowhere like that, not leaving any signs except for the tracks and letting us record them. And uh, anyway, Dr. Curlin studied him for a year, and he did an analysis on him and said there was absolutely no manipulation in them at all. They were not speeded up. They were not slowed down. They were not, uh, there was no 60-cycle hum, which would have suggested, no one suggested it would have been a dead ringer for a hoax because that means they would have been pre-recorded. They were not pre-recorded. And there was also the interaction with them we had later on, too, that uh, mm-hmm. one, you know, humans stepping on one of their voices and their voices stepping on each other and stuff like that going on. So I uh, couldn't hoax it, and it wasn't until later on when Scott Nelson, the cryptolinguist, uh, got a hold of him kind of by accident. That was in 2008. And he uh, he listened to him, and he came all the way out from Missouri where he was teaching foreign languages at the time. He's a retired Navy guy. He, he was a cryptolinguist in the Navy, and he was trained as that, and he did it for his whole career in the Navy. He retired out of the Navy and went to teaching school in Missouri. So he came out because he... He's I gotta get to the bottom of this. He comes out and he talks to Al Berry and myself and got the context of the sounds and asked if he could look at him and study him and we said, Sure. I didn't know a guy like this existed, but he's one of these guys with perfect hearing. There's only a handful of these guys existing that, that qualify to do what he did. <clears throat> I mean it's a he's a two time graduate of the uh, cryptolinguistic uh, like uh, languages of foreign language or something like that in California. And I credit him very well because a lot of people have gotten a hold of me saying, hey, we think we know what these things are saying. Well, nobody knows what they're saying. I mean, somebody might think right. they know, but Scott Nelson don't know. You know he, he knows that they have a language, and I say language by the human definition of language. This is important. What I'm fixing to say is very important because only humans are supposed to have sapient language like we have. These things have that. So that tells me, and after all this years of doing this stuff, uh, they may have a human component to them. You know, we may somehow uh, interrelated or something. Because if they have sapient, sapience, and they do, I believe, because you can hear on some of the recordings I have where they really have an issue with each other sometimes. But at the time, we didn't know if the issue was with each other or if they were discussing who was going to put salt and pepper on us, you know, when they come through the wall. We're all sitting there with our guns ready, you know, just in case, but but they never came through the walls, and uh, we never offered to shoot at them. And so this went on and on and on. And uh, went on through 76, the close-in stuff, and it wasn't until uh, we had to shoot a bear in camp that was uh, uh, giving us trouble. And uh, after that, they never came in close anymore. At least they didn't make their sounds up close anymore. We did hear them at distances. We could hear them, different signs of them. And then uh, strange things happened to them there, though, and that's what puts me over in the woo-woo camp sometimes. But really, uh, <laughs> Al Berry, was, he had a master's degree in science, and he, uh, he said, stay with science on all this stuff or you're going to be in trouble. Well, the science, classical science just doesn't answer the enigmas we were experiencing up there. We're talking about some really strange things, which we can talk about if you want to, but... Uh, what does answer that is quantum science, and so I uh, I started delving into that. I mentioned that to a couple of scientists. I was in Russia with there a few, well, 2011, I guess it was, and they said, "Well, we can't talk to you about quantum science. We're just classical science." So, so anyway, I kind of uh, went off and just kept reading and reading, and studying uh, quantum science, and that seems to be something that I hooked into because it makes so much sense. Even uh, Tesla said uh, what one man calls God, another man calls quantum physics. He also said, uh, I have a really short paragraph here I want to read you. <clears throat> this is our quote from Tesla, too. The day science begins to study non-physical phenomena will make more progress in one decade than all the previous centuries of its existence. And uh, I think we're in that time now. You got so many people that have cognizant dissidents, which is uh, when they get new information, they just can't handle it. But I'm afraid so many researchers and so many scientists are are stuck in their paradigm of thinking they have to be 
because they look like they do look like they ain't, and they're out there in the woods. And so that would lead you to think like, like we did. We all thought that's what we were encountering up there, some kind of an ape that hadn't been discovered. But uh, everybody wants to put them in their what they think instead of just having an open mind with it and trying to figure it out. Because what really throws you a loop is when you experience this, this unusual stuff that goes on the lights and different things like that, just sounds that you can't, uh, you don't know what the source was because it's just strange stuff. And uh, anyway, it's kind of led me into all that. And uh, the seer sounds have became, have became quite uh, noted just because they're so clear. We've got some really good recordings, but all of us are recording. Uh, and it's just, uh, we've had the, the studies done on them now, the different people have looked into them, and but the two main ones was Dr. Curlin, Professor Curlin, and Scott Nelson. And Scott Nelson is, is really the cryptolinguist who, who transcribed a, a language within the sounds. He can't tell you what they were saying. They didn't translate. They transcribed. And that's what he did right. in the military for the, for the Navy. So you guys got any questions? Just spark up there and let me go. <laughs> All right. Thomas, you want to jump in and? No, Ron, it was, uh, you already answered one question. I always wondered, the, the late Alan Barry, the poor guy passed away in 2012. I met and talked to him, and he went with you and made his recordings when you were there in 1972, correct? Correct. Now, his, yes. his recordings weren't the first. You guys had made recordings before that? Yes, Okay. There was the quality. The, the, he had the quality. Plus, we were recording over our cassettes. And you should never do that. He, he, he knew better. <clears throat> we were just, we weren't professional like he was. We were just up there. But mm-hmm. he was up there looking for what was going on. He was really investigating. And uh, he knew to use new, clean cassette tapes. And he had a good tape recorder. And he remoted that tape recorder up behind our shelter. And, uh, had a coin, and he knew to get it started before these things start talking and before they start making their sounds, and he did that. So those are those are the sounds that Dr. Curlin uh, looked into to see if they were manipulated in any way or so, and uh, they weren't. So that made the is big. Doctor, uh, is Dr. Curling the man who was uh, uh, basically interviewed in the documentary that covered this instance, Mysterious Monsters? With uh, hosted by um, oh, our uh, Mission Impossible, the, the actor with the white hair—I can't remember his name. Uh, been, uh, a computer analysis, Impos- very that old was, computer. Uh, actually, that was Dr. Benson in Texas A&M, I think. Uh, where he okay. The sounds. And, yeah, he didn't do a full-blown study. I tried to get him to, but he just said, "I don't have time for this." And, but he did look into it, and he said it represented a, an animal eight and a half foot tall, and that uh, the voice track, and that's the same thing Curlin said. It was eight foot four inches. He estimated the vocal track to represent compared wow. to humans. So, yeah, one of the so things Dr. he Curlin, said impressed. Uh, one of the things he what? said impressed was at no time did he hear the e sound emit from any of the vocalizations, like it like as almost it didn't have the ability to do that. They like said that basically human language or language is basically e ah ah and o, oh, but at no time did it say the e make the e sound. I don't remember that part, Thomas, because uh, <clears throat> yeah. these things can they have an expanded vocal mechanism which creates sounds that's much uh, superior to us. Uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Curlin's graph even shows that. Uh, where they go outside, inside, and below, uh, below and above the human range. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that gives them the ability to make sounds that we can't make. So I know ah. they can say things that sound like, they can mimic people's like names, them. mimic people's dogs, mimic things uh, very well. And I think that's why they they have this vocal ability that we just don't seem to have. And uh, The people we've had listened to them, even Scott says, I challenge anybody to try to duplicate this. He says, because a human cannot do this. Uh, Dr. Uh, Brown, or uh, Philip Lieberman, excuse me, at Brown University, he said that only humans have the vocal mechanism for language, and uh, that kind of opens up 
things a little bit because if only humans have the vocal mechanism for language, that kind of makes them maybe in the human category somewhere, you know, at least a, a hybrid or something of that sort. I don't know. We're all still looking. We're also trying to figure this thing out. It's it's quite a journey doing it, though. I got to tell you that it's a lot of fun, mm-hmm. exciting. Now, um, Alan said at, during 1972, no one actually got a look at one of these things. What did anyone in any of the other experiences get a look at one of these things? Yes, uh, actually, both the Johnsons did. And uh, mm-hmm. they got a one of them got a pretty good look. Of course, Al never did, but Al, Al was kind of a newbie up there, like I was. But Al, uh, Al, Al uh, just never got to see a glimpse of one or anything where the rest of us did it. I got my glimpse in 1974 when the Samurai Cry, they call it, uh, when I was interacting with my friend Bill McDowell and I when we were outside the shelter, which was a first. And uh, I saw this thing running by, and uh, I mean, it's so fast, and it's going down to we think we're two other ones, an adolescent and maybe a female. And that that's actually Matt Moneymaker <laughs> coined the sound, the samurai. It sounds like a samurai cry. He did that just before the BFRO, where he started the BFRO. And uh, so that's the first time we got to see what was making the sound, because that cry came out and that thing goes whipping by, and uh, I couldn't get any details out of it, but it was so fast. And uh, you'd think something that big wouldn't be so agile, but it, it sure is. And they're very, very fast. My daughter so, has seen them up there. For our listening audience, the answer is yes. What was making the sounds around your camp in the high years were seen. Yes, they were. Mm-hmm. They don't they come up and shake hands with you, but we've got glimpses of them. Uh-huh. And my daughter got a really good view of one. Uh, she, in fact, it's in it's in the back of my book. I think Sabilla she, she drew a depiction of it and. Yeah, it was about 70 feet away, I think. And uh, mm-hmm. we were both had our back to where it was. And she stood up, just her and I up there, we'd walked in. And um, she stood up and turned around, and it was over there standing up staring at us under this big pine tree. And uh, she couldn't even talk. She was just frozen. And uh, by the time she she was just shaking her hand, pointing her finger, and I got up and turned around. And my camera's, of course, 15 feet away, right? <laughs> our tree <laughs> happens. But it was gone, and uh, that was just at dusk, but it was light enough to where she could see it. I walked over there the next morning and didn't want to disturb the grounds or try to find some evidence or something. And, and uh, from me standing there, she she said it was uh, seven foot, a little over seven foot tall. I'm 5'10", so that's uh, see, one of the biggest problems. One of the biggest problems in this case for the public in general is uh, the way the scenario is portrayed. Like before you started publishing about it and stuff like that, all we knew about the Sierra Sounds incidents was what you saw in documentaries. And I believe a monster mystery is missed. They talked about it, and they sh- and they had actors portraying you guys. They had an actor portraying Alan Barry, some son guy with a fishing vest and hooks all over his hat. I guess he was supposed to be you, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but it made it sound like you guys were on a weekend camping trip in a tent, and suddenly this happened. And I said, no, no, yeah, that's so not the way. <laughs> so many th- people think that. Like, we backed up our truck over with a six-pack and started recording these sounds, you know. It's not like that at all. No. Well, yeah, where you guys were actually um, on a vehicle, it, it had to be either on horseback or foot, correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, you couldn't even, yeah, even a motorcycle wouldn't get up there, I don't think. But they're not allowed in there anyway. It's wilderness country. Uh, it's a, quite a trip. And uh, I took uh, David Polites in there, you know, the missing 401 uh, guy. He, uh, mm-hmm. I've known him for years too, and uh, he finally talked me into letting me go in and film the place with his videographer. So we did that in 2018, and uh, that's on his uh, the see, missing 411, the hunted, I think it is. I got about a 15-minute section in that uh, video that he did, and he did a reproduction of something that happened to me and and uh, Carrie in 2016, actually the same year that uh, we went on that fishing journey up Thomas <laughs> up in Canada. Uh, we went up there uh, in 2016, camped, uh, walked in, and, uh, excuse me, no, we rode in, and uh, um, this light, a bolt of light, I say the sound of a bolt means fast, but it wasn't, it was like a tube of light, about probably three foot long, 
uh, circular and, that, and, and uh, just come floating by our tent. I say tent because we didn't sleep in the shelter then. Uh, and you don't know what to do with that, but it's certainly not normal. It's not like, it's not something you can explain. It's just that you're up there in the middle of nowhere and this thing comes floating by you. And we watched it for several seconds. I like it was zooming by. It just floated by, going between the trees. It was definitely controlled, and uh, you don't know what to do with that stuff. You know, other than it's, it's, you just got to realize that we do not see everything that is to be seen with our regular eyes. We saw that, but we don't hear within certain frequencies. Everything is a frequency according to Tesla and according to physics. It's an energy, frequency, and vibration. And if you can get the right vibration, the right frequency, you know, you can change matter. So I'm just I'm just saying all that because we live in a three-dimensional environment. And I love to try to explain this, but it's not easy to explain. We think everything is based on a Newtonian physics, which basically everything in our three-dimensional environment is. But Newtonian physics in 1687, uh, you know, it's good, but it does, you can you can measure things and all that. But quantum science is unpredictable. We're classical science, you can predict things, you can measure things. Uh, There's quite a learning curve to go from one and step into the other and still pull your classical world with you because you've got to live in it, you've got to be in it. Uh, we have to do that every day, but when we realize that we don't hear all the sounds either, we only hear within our frequency range, you've got ultrasound, which dogs can hear with their whistles, you've got infrasound, which elephants and big giraffes and big animals, tigers use that, to con- but we don't hear those frequencies. So we don't see everything there is to see. We don't hear everything there is to see, to hear. And uh, our olfactory sense, there's another one. I mean, uh, a bear has an olfactory sense, they say, is 2,100 times better than a human's. And a dog is seven mm. times better. You know, you, you go on with those, because everything's a frequency, everything. And I, I get into this uh, more deeply in my book, The Quantum Bigfoot. But uh, so many people just think they can't get their head around quantum physics, but you can if you start trying. <laughs> and all I'm trying to do is encourage uh, researchers and people to open their minds and realize that there are things we don't know. We have not evolved as a human race as far as we need to. Uh, these things uh, normally don't interact with people like they did with us. Why they did it with us, I don't know. Maybe so I could talk with you guys tonight. I don't know. But it's uh, yeah. it's they they did. And uh, I don't think they were supposed to. I don't think anything is supposed to mess with our karma, what we're supposed to experience and how we're supposed to experience it. How we're supposed to react to those experiences is more important than the experience itself. And if we like were, the, were all the incidents of vocalizations at that camp at night, was there anything that occurred during daylight hours? No, nothing like chatter, nothing like the chatter that uh, John Green talked about that the uh, Hossman experienced. And that's what we okay. were experiencing, the rapid chatter. But mm-hmm. no, it wouldn't happen until uh, until it started getting dark. And, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's a certain safety measure there with these things that uh, they just didn't want to deal with us. Uh, they don't want to be seen. They don't, they don't want to interfere, I guess. I'm not sure. Uh, all I know is we didn't. We didn't. We always went out with our cameras thinking, you know, we're going to get a picture of one running around something, but that didn't happen. The night that I got to see the glimpse of one in 74 is when, uh, when there's a, just a bright moon. You can't hide when there's a bright moon at 8,400 feet in the Sierra Nevada Mountains. It's like reading a newspaper. <laughs> you know, it's so bright. And uh, that's what happened that night. So that was exciting. And I was able to record some of that, you know, obviously. So, yeah, I loved uh, some skepticism here, uh, uh, Thomas, because the people that I talk to generally are on board already with uh, with knowing there's something special about these things, but I'm getting so many, many, many reports of the anomalies that people don't understand. They, they say, there's a guy trying to call me now from Canada. I mean, want to talk to me about stuff he's experiencing up there. And uh, it's just, uh, he says it falls right into what you're saying in your Quantum Bigfoot book, and I want to talk to you. But I maybe you'll call me tomorrow, I don't know. I'm just right. saying that there's a lot of there's a lot of people that have this stuff going on. I've talked to people that said they saw them disappear. Now, come on. I used to throw those well, people I, out with baby water. <laughs> you know? But is I, there an answer for that? You get there's so there's a lot of, a lot, there are a lot of people who claim a lot of things. 
The question right. is, are they telling the truth or not? And the question is, uh, are they or not? Like, to me, the Sasquatch, assuming that it does exist, and I do believe it does, to me, I've always been uh, zoological. To me, if it exists, it's a, it's a, it's a large undisclosed primate. Now, I know you and me uh, disagree on a lot of that, and we debated a lot on Operation Sea Monkey, but that doesn't mean I'm either right and you're wrong, or, or you're wrong and I'm right. We just don't know. <laughs> That's right. We don't know. <laughs> yeah. However, I don't disagree with you. It is a primate. It's an undiscovered primate of some type. It is flesh and blood. It's here. There's no doubt about that. It poops. It makes sounds. Uh, you know, it, it procreates. We saw small small tracks up there too in the snow, and and it, it's it is a it is flesh and blood. All I'm saying is, could there be more to it than flesh and blood? I mean, is there more to us than just flesh and blood? And that's where I get into quantum science a little bit, Thomas, because. But we are more. What gives us our consciousness? What gives us our our, our, our ability to be uh, telepathic? Some people are. Uh, so many things that the classical science and Darwinism does not explain. It doesn't explain those things to people. You know what what gives them those attributes. And uh, I'm just saying that uh, if there's if these things are part human, maybe they have some of those same attributes that we have that we just don't haven't developed yet. We haven't evolved enough. Possibly, and that's what I'm saying is that people just need to keep that in mind. It doesn't mean that I'm right, but it doesn't mean that, that they're just an ape like uh, like a gorilla or something like that either. I think they're more than just that, and and I only say that because I've experienced so many unusual things around them, and when that happens with somebody, they you know you get some light floating by you or something. Well, what made that? What did that? What made that happen? You hear sounds like I did, like we did. We was in the shelter. We thought our camp was being tore apart. I've told this story before, but we thought things were being tore apart out there. You know, cans rolling around that we'd hauled in on the mules and just barrels being ripped up that we'd hauled in to pack our supplies in, and and uh, they were cabled to trees. But all of a sudden, all this stuff's been scattered, do you think, everywhere. And you look out there later on when all the commotion stopped and nothing has changed. Not, nothing mm. has changed. How do you explain that something is... like that? <clears throat> That's weird. And one time, I, this is in the daytime now, I, I hear this big, it sounded like a tuning fork going around above us. We were looking for it. What was it? It sounded like a, you know, a 20-ton tuning fork, <laughs> just huge sound. Woo, woo, woo. And you look, look and trying to see the source of it, and you can't find the source of it. And like I say, in 2016, that light comes floating by us. Well, what's that all about? has an intelligence behind it. I mean, it doesn't just, lights just don't float around like that. It's just a fluorescent uh, remote controller. <laughs> anyway, uh, there's more going on than water meets our eyes, is my point. And I'm just hoping that people will look and just not flush that out like I used to do with the, with the baby water, you know. Uh, just mm-hmm. keep your mind open that maybe there's more to it than just flesh and blood. Because there's more to us than just flesh and blood. I totally believe in that. Now, now, now Ron, you, when you, you guys, you... what color was that back in 2016? Well, it was white. It was white. Glowing. Okay. Glowing wow. White. Okay. Something hmm. else there, Thomas. Thomas, are you there? Yeah, Ron. Yeah, um, go ahead, Tom. I want, yeah, I want to ask, um, what what was the title you said of your latest book? Quantum Bigfoot. Okay, I haven't read that one. I read Voices in the Wilderness, uh-huh. a book you put out a couple of years ago. Enjoyed it. Well written. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have it. that one, too. Yeah, and, I, um, I, I love the, the dedication you wrote to uh, uh, Alan Barry. Mm-hmm. Very interesting book, but I did not know you had written another one. So when did that one come up? It came out uh, uh, two years ago, I think it was. Oh, okay, okay. I've sold I've okay. sold a few thousand of them. I mean, they're popular stuff. I got them on yeah. Amazon KDP, uh, print on demand now, and uh, I sell those every day. They're going out. 
six or eight. Depends if I'm on a program like this and people hear about it, all of a sudden I get a big bang on it. You know, <laughs> a bunch of people. Are, <laughs> right. But it kind of well, it gets into the it gets into the enigmas associated with these things and the possible science behind them. Because you get into uh, quantum physics and you can't help but couple that with spirituality. Uh, they're they're synonymous because you you. I was raised in church, and I'm not a religious person now, but definitely spiritual, like we all are, whether you like it or not. You know, something's going on. According to Stephen Hawkins, energy does not die. It only changes forms. So if it changes forms, what happens? It goes somewhere else, but it's not, it doesn't have any weight to it, no density. Um, these people that say they saw them disappear, Thomas, I heard that too many times to think there has to be something behind it, especially when it's a highway patrolman tells you that or or somebody mm. you know very, very well tells you something like that. They've seen it just pixelating while it's walking. And and uh, it's, it's also like that if you've seen the missing 401 that hunted, there's an episode right after me where this woman and her husband's a professor, a doctor. She was tree hunting on their property. And she saw this pixelation form go from one tree to another. And it just freaked her out. She didn't know what to do with that. But that's what people are claiming they tell me that. I've never saw this happen, but I know some people that have. And is there an answer for that in, in science? Well, there is. That's why I get into my book. Uh, it's density, because if they can change their matter into something that goes out of our perspective, which would be energy, or even if they don't, if it just goes out of our, our visual vibration that we can't see, you're not going to see what more. So why do you feel that what that woman reported has anything to do with the Sasquatch whatsoever? Oh, because what I'm saying, people are saying they see them disappear, and they say they see them go into that pixelated form that she was describing in that in that program. And uh, well, I, I know I've 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 had people tell me they've seen Sasquatch transform into other animals. I've had some people tell me Sasquatch transforms into people. I've had women tell me they mate with them. I've had people tell me all kinds of things. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're true. It may be true to them in their minds, but it doesn't necessarily that's mean it's a, true in reality. Well, that's correct. You don't know what to believe. So you just have that's to right. try to take them all in, put them in your hat, and think about them and see how many of them fit together for any kind of a picture. That's what I've done for 50 years. And uh, that's why I, until something really strange happens to you, you don't get out of that, that, that mindset of thinking that they're just what, the, what you think they have to be. Uh, so many scientists. Sure, I mean, I, I admit, I admit, I've seen a lot of strange things in the bush too. Light, things like that. I just don't associate with the Sasquatch. I say, well, you know, a UFO researcher would probably be interested in this thing or something like that. But uh, to me, I, I see no connection between them all. But then again, maybe I'm wrong. Well, let me tell you this. Uh, in 1888, the first publication came out about um, people seeing UFO and Sasquatch at the same time. Uh, there's a group of ranchers in Humboldt County. I saw a, a small moon come down and three crazy bears get out of it and this moon shot off. Uh, that's the first account of a UFO and maybe possibly Bigfoot. But I, I, if you believe in aliens, I don't know if you do or not, but uh, I believe they've been here. I've seen evidence. Oh, oh you, you have to be really narrow-minded to think that little planet Earth, that one speck of sand in that huge desert, is yeah. the only one to have life. That's ridiculous. That's yeah. That is ridiculous. No, no, I do believe UFO phenomena is real. I also believe the Sasquatch is real, but I just don't think there's a connection between the two. Well, I was going to but say it's twenty percent of the Sasquatch. Twenty percent of Sasquatch encounters have a UFO connected with them. Well, a lot of that's people connect UFOs with a lot of things. A lot of people connect Sasquatch with a lot of things. It's like I said, there is a lot of people who like to tell weird tales, and maybe in their minds they actually believe it, but who knows? I don't know. There is definitely a phenomena. The phenomena is real, but are they connected? That's my big question. Well, I think they are, and some of them. I've got to say this now. I know, I know, and, and, and I admit 
Who knows? Maybe you're right. But to me, maybe I am. But maybe I'm maybe not. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're all going to know one of these days. <laughs> <Let you know. laughs> uh, until something happens that, that triggers that, uh, if you see it yourself, if you also see a, a Bigfoot and a UFO together, would you you would change your mind, wouldn't it? Damn right I would, and I would let everyone know yeah. I did see it, and I was wrong. Well, for but how, do you, how would they know you're not lying? <laughs> well, again, what it I'm all comes is, down you, to you, it, right? It all comes down to uh, getting the evidence. Credibility. <laughs> That's the big problem. Well, but how do you get, how I mean, do you get, to me, do you get evidence? Well, doing this and making a paranormal connection is just a way of making the endless merry-go-round keep going around. Well, it's got to happen to you, Thomas. That's all I got to say. Uh, uh-huh. I may have seen it once myself, but I, I don't know because I always had the philosophy to stick to the facts, never deviate the facts. I saw a figure. It was jet black in color, and it appeared to be walking upright, but it was also a fact it was way too far away to see fine detail. So I can't say with 100% certain that wasn't a big, odd-looking man way up there. And I just say, I saw a figure. If that was a Sasquatch, I have seen one. If it was not a Sasquatch, I still have not. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty objective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But your book, you know, Quantum Big that that's available at Amazon <clears throat> for people who are listening. Quantum Bigfoot. Right. And then the, the other, the first one is Voices in the Wilderness. So I just want to make sure our listeners... Correct. Uh, know that they can hop on there and, and check that out. And uh, I have an idea that Thomas Steenberg is going to be purchasing your Quantum Bigfoot book now. Actually, I'll send him one. Well, here in Canada, aren't you, Thomas? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, fascinating. But and it's always interesting to read opinions and stuff from people who have different attitudes to my own. Because, Ron, I may not agree with you, but... I accept the possibility that in the end you may turn out to be right. <laughs> could be. <laughs> and it could yeah. be I'm wrong. You know, I'm not afraid to say that. Uh, it's just that uh, it seems like every, every dot I put together falls into this category that, that I've been working at for 50-some-odd years. And it's just uh, uh, my book subtitle is Bringing Science and Spirituality Back Together because you get into Tesla, you get into Einstein, they, they believed in, in a supernatural something. And uh, you get into religions and, and spiritual stuff, and people draw the line there and separate that from science. And yet you get into quantum physics, and it's really quite synonymous with quantum physics, uh, spirituality. Because, yeah, again, that's probably, that's probably my drawback here, Ron. I'm not a spiritual person. Uh, when I was born, I was my parents was baptized me in the Anglican Church, the Church of England, and I, and doing research on it. I said, "Wow, what do you know? My my church was started by Henry VIII, so he can get rid of his first wife." You know, <laughs> you know well, that's not right. That's not spirituality. That's that's religion. I'm saying I'm saying there's a difference between spirituality and religion. all religions. Yeah, that's religion. Uh, One of the many. Is, is that's, the energy that we have is the spirit that leaves you when you die, which cannot die when you pass on, I should say. And we are spiritual, whether you like it or not, Thomas. You're not going to just be nothing when you die. When you pass Ron? on, I say pass on instead of die. Yes. Ron, <laughs> hope yes. you are right. You are the Dolly, you're not the Dolly Thomas on this one. Okay, you're going to pass I, on to something. I hope and you it, are right. Yeah, I really do. I really hope according you are science, right. According, according to science, I am right. According to Einstein, according to Dr. Pastaway uh, 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 a couple of years ago. Um, and to a lot of uh, PhDs, no, you're not. <laughs> no, actually, any <laughs> physicist will. They, they debate it themselves endlessly. <laughs> well, there's over a million oh, I just bought the book as we were talking it. here because now I'm extremely uh, intrigued, Ron. I I knew of your theory and I've, I'm familiar with it. I just haven't read the the book fully, but uh, now I'm intrigued because you know some of the things that you're talking about. I've heard other people say as well. I've I've heard people's experiences and. Um, I'll tell you, there's a lot of stuff. I live, I live just outside of the Uwari National Forest here in North Carolina, 
And this area has the highest reported um, sightings of Sasquatch in the entire state. And there's also something else going on over there, and I'm I'm not sure what it is, but those, the thing that you were talking about that you saw have been reported in the Uari Forest as well, um, uh, as well as orbs the size, size of basketballs zipping back and forth across a certain meadow over there that a lot of weird things have happened around. So, you know, I... I I understand where you're yep. coming from. I do. And, um, you know, like Thomas said, uh, I, I certainly don't know everything there is to know about all of this. I haven't even seen a Bigfoot, but um, a lot of people swear to God they have. So, Oh, a lot of people. You know, the reports have been coming in just, I mean, a lot. Also, I think you're going to see something else happen here before too long. I think you're... The government uh, has been keeping the lid on aliens, which uh, kind of off the lid with the UFOs. Something's flying those things. And aliens, from what I can tell from what I've seen in Bolivia and Peru and those places down there, they have definitely something with advanced technology has done some of that stuff that I witnessed. And that kind of gets the lid off of your head because you realize there's been some advanced technology here. And when you see their human remains, that some grave digger uh, dug up, and and you're thinking, well, <clears throat> these things aren't human, and they weren't. We I went down there two different times with two different scientists, and those elongated skulls. My my trip and the reason for going there was to see if the elongated skulls had anything to do with the sagittal crest that's often reported on Bigfoot up here. And uh, it seems like it does. There's a trail, crumb trail, coming all the way up to Lovelock Caves and into the Sierras. So there could be a, a, an alien connection there because what I seen down there was definitely something alien. Uh, alien, it was alien to me. <laughs> and uh, when you see that with your own eyes, you you got to open your mind a little bit and say, "Wow, what could really? How how could this have been done? How did they take a way over a hundred ton boulder and put it up hundreds of them, put them up on top of this mountain?" And put them together like a jigsaw puzzle. I mean, there's no mortar. You can't put a card between them. There's nothing holding together other than their form. And those, they've been formed perfectly to fit with each other. And and you see this all over Peru, uh, at least in the upper areas. Uh, we went up out of Cusco and, and traveled a lot of uh, up in Peru and went over into Bolivia. Those things are just uh, the Puma Puku. There's there's things that are just are not explainable by our current science. How how it was done. It was done eons ago, a long long time ago. And how to, how does this connect with Bigfoot? Uh, like I say, the Crumb Trail kind of led all the way up here, but the Sagittal Crest is what got me involved. Mm. Wondering if that's uh, had anything to do with it because the the DNA off those skulls that were found down there uh, have been studied now and they have the haplogroup from uh, Asia and over by the uh, Black Sea and so how'd they get across the water you know there's all kinds of stuff that you get into UFOs and and I just you gotta wonder is there a Bigfoot connection well I was gonna say earlier they're not all the same these things and I don't mean like I mean like it's not like a black person or a Mexican person or a white person I don't know if I can say all that on the air <laughs> but it's it's like they're different genomes. I think that different aliens have been here. Now, this is a little bit out there, but I think if you see what I've seen in the past and and read what I've read, and uh, if this is true and all these aliens have been coming here for all these eons, they've messed with the genome of all kinds of animals and all kinds of species. The big question is why? This Earth is the jewel of this solar system. The absolute jewel. It's got everything that any alien would want. It's got Everything. So they come here. They got. Here's my theory. You gonna hear it, Thomas? <laughs> no, he's already hung up. Probably. Oh no, I'm listening. I, uh, okay, good. <laughs> but I, think, I think they've they've tapped it. They tapped with the genome of different species here to acclimate their species to this environment. Uh, they need they need their species to exist on this planet because this planet has everything that's needed that other planets don't have. Uh, that's my my theory, anyway. I don't think I'm going to want to hold that theory, but uh, uh, there's a lot of humans that look like alien to me. 
Maybe they're hybrids mm-hmm. running around. Bigfoot just might be a hybrid, hybrid from a from a gorilla type entity, from an alien component into the DNA, and hybridization. There, I said. Yeah. Now throw me off the woo. Throw me off the woo. <laughs> However, woo woo, woo woo, paranormal, all that stuff to me is quantum science. And if you get into quantum a, science, you it's realize an interesting hypothesis. Yes. <laughs> well, let's see what happens. I think we're going to be a lot of, a lot of things are going to happen in the next few years. I just think there's too much coming out and uh, too much being revealed for us not to get a handle on a little bit of it here. Oh, God, Ron, if someone came up to me in the late 70s when I started and said that we're still going to be looking in 2021, I would have said, no way. <laughs> well, there's your question. How come you haven't found them? They live underground. Exactly. Where they live. I, I, I say it's two possibilities. It's one that's a lot more elusive and remote than, as it obviously is, or two, there is no such thing. It's all mythology and folklore. So you don't think there's a possibility they could live underground? I don't see how. Well, look at this stuff in Turkey. See, I got this on my computer. There's a whole a bunch of stuff. Look at underground cities. They got they got a underground tunneling system over there. They say that would hold twenty thousand people. And yeah. there's a whole uh, in Somalia. You go over to Somalia where uh, well, Canal and they're having the war over there. Some of the Japanese. There's a whole book on that. The giants that live underground over there. So if Bigfoot <clears throat> lives underground. And my, uh, my, would, my answer to that here in BC, we've had a lot of cavers, and I've never heard of one caving group ever finding any evidence of Sasquatch in a cave. You won't. No, I, I think there's a way they get to underground that you won't know about. No, well, again, afraid, again, that's hypothesis. I'm afraid to tell you how. Yeah. I'm sure it is. Again, that's sure. hypothesis. Yeah. Yes, I agree with you, it is. However, it's based on a lot of stuff. It's, 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 of course. You know, that's what hypothesis is. Cause that's exactly. of other people, it's a kind of histories. It's kind of what people have told me they've seen that I've believed. I don't believe everybody. Trust me, I don't just take everything and stick it in there and say yeah. it's a fact. But when somebody credible, very credible, tells you something, uh, you kind of pay attention. Are they lying? Are they delusional? Or is it the truth? you got those choices. So, well, that's what I always say. Whenever you're interviewing a witness... To an Sasquatch sighting, there's three possibilities. Only three. One, they saw a Sasquatch. Two, they mistook something or someone for a Sasquatch. Or three, they're lying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. There you go. Yep. Julie, uh, we're using up a lot of time. Did you want to talk about Operation Sea Monkey at all? Yeah, I, I just want to say that, uh, wow, what a conversation. I, I never thought that I would hear Thomas Steenberg and Ron Moorhead talking back and forth about this. So that just made my whole century. Thank you very much. And um, I'll tell you, it's I'm definitely getting that book now. And, <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm very this. Ron's an intelligent, smart guy, and every time we get in a debate like this, he gets me scratching my head. I'm oh, sure. That's nice to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I. But yeah, we're we've got about five minutes ahead. left. Um, we'll just touch on that for a minute. You guys, you went up there. Um, did you actually go into to Canada on your Operation Sea Monkey trip? Yes. Yes. We we got on a boat up at uh, what was it, Camel River or up above there? Yeah, Camel uh, River. Thomas. Yeah, we got on a boat up there and stayed on that boat for a week. But we went from island to island with Thomas Seawig, and uh, he had seen a couple of Sasquatch on an island up there and thought this timing would be perfect because the tides would go down and we could find some remains or something because they go in looking for a, a, what was it? They, they go in to eat something along the shore when the tide goes out. And uh, yeah. so we were trying, Animals, to, trying to get them. And the salmon runs I just were going on. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. So, uh, so we parked the boat about a oh, hundred yards off the shore line from an island, and we go onto the island, set up camera traps, and uh, and come back out, and we'd spend uh, time watching them with thermal camera during the night. And uh, I did that one night, I think. <laughs> it was so cold. I sit in there, and there's binoculars and thermal 
I'm going to look at all that for two hours. I'm not going to do this anymore. <laughs> These things, first of all, I think they know you're doing that. They are, they are sapient beings, at least the ones I've dealt with. Are. And if these things are anything to do with like what I was dealing with, um, they, they know what you're doing and they can see what you're doing. And they don't know exactly everything maybe that you're doing, but they know it's just not supposed to be that way. So they leave it alone. They go away from it. And I, I told Todd when I went off on that one, on one island, I had him set the cameras. I, and we got one camera set in front of another one because they're still thinking they're going to find something, walk up and look at the camera. The only thing we had walking up and look at the camera was grizzly bears. <laughs> yeah. And uh, actually the very last night was the most exciting night, I think. when We were going to go out on the shore for one night and actually barbecue on the, on the land instead of on the boat. And uh, about that time, uh, Todd, <laughs> Todd was setting out cameras over on the shore uh, around this corner from where the river is coming in. And, and uh, I forgot who was with him, but uh, was it Gunner? Maybe it was Gunner. And uh, yeah, anyway, uh, okay, yeah, they, they went there to set them out. About that time, we were looking from the boat, and we see this this bear, a grizzly bear, walking along the bank. He must have smelled them because they looked at and they got a big olfactory sense, good smellers. And he was walking towards them. So <laughs> um, the captain gets on the ship starts calling to Todd and of course Todd's got the shotgun right that's uh, right that the, that the local guy had the, the Thomas Seawig he's, he's Canadian and he had the shotgun <clears throat> so I think Todd was actually hoping that uh, that bear would get there but we shot out there with the other dinghy and told him about it and they got in and anyway well everybody shot back but the bear uh I think Todd was wanting the bear to go around there so he could shoot at it. Then he found out the, the, the bullets were rusty. <laughs> it wasn't ah. <laughs> He'd have been in a lot of trouble. But that was. That oh was yeah, I remember that. And I think <laughs> I told him. I think my my theory is uh, you got to be still and stay in one spot. If you're going to be there for weeks, stay in one spot for a week. Just do something. Keep the grizzly bears off it because there's a lot of bear up there. And maybe, in fact, the island where Thomas Seawood said he would, uh, he saw these two might be the place to go. Uh, mm-hmm. He thinks they swim between the islands, and maybe they do. Uh, there's been other reports like that up there. So that's the well, uh, grizzly bears definitely do. We figured that out. Oh yeah, wow. they, they do. They swim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, if yeah. I was to do it again, I would. Uh, I'd spend instead of going from island to island to island. I would have gone to the island where we spent the second night where uh, Seaward's old shack was, and that last night when we had the bear encounter, that was mm-hmm. that was interesting. And what was even more interesting was the next morning, I set the cameras out. I was one of the party ashore that the bear was, was approaching, and I set okay. the cameras out. And, Ron, you went in the next day to recover them. You got the nickname Quicksand Quick I, know, I got stuck in the mud and I couldn't get out. <laughs> Tom, Tom Seward saved me. He comes over and he knows how to walk through that stuff and not get stuck. But I just bogged him down all the way in my boots. I had to pull my, get out of my boots to get out of there on my knees and suck my boots <laughs> here. out. <laughs> but here I am, what, 20, 30 feet from the uh, bush line over there where all these bears were seen the night before on the camera. Uh, of course, we didn't know that until we got back and looked at the camera. But uh, it was just... Uh, it was a fun time. It was fun. Good memories. Good and memories he still recovered the cameras even after getting stuck in the mud there, there, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. We didn't, we didn't get a call saying it was a grizzly bear talking down our throat. <laughs> what well, was kind of, of funny, bear, the cat, of... he did it in a sort of roundabout way. He said, how you doing? I said, fine. <laughs> Who's got the shotgun? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, 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 Todd's got the shotgun. You might want to load it. <laughs> you might want to load. <laughs> well, you know yeah, that you black bear that we thought we saw. It turns out it's a grizzly, and it's coming your way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we yeah. we just I, I told the guys there. Look, boys, uh, grizzlies in BC are like rabbits. They're all over the place. If we make a lot of noise, if it reacts normally, it should go away. So uh, Gunner was blown off a horn, and for some reason I started singing the Bear Necessities from the Jungle Book. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> the bear probably, and then we noticed Seward in the Zodiac, he was yelling at it in his quack 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 language, and Todd goes, oh, great, oh he's trying to piss off the bear. <laughs> 
Good times. <laughs> oh, this is fun. This it, is it was fun. an interesting way, experience. My website, my website if we're still on, I don't know, but it's uh, ronmoorhead.com, and that's where my CDs and different things can be ordered. M O R E H E D one O. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Oh yeah, definitely. www.ronmoorhead.com. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, and I'll tell you what, we are on the top of the hour here. Uh, wow, what a show! I must say that was uh, that was a pretty good show, guys. And Ron, we really appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you. I appreciate you asking me. I was surprised, Tom, asking me. You know, we see things differently, but I love that, Thomas. I do. It gives us a chance to go back and forth a little bit and see what's going on. Yeah. We'll solve the mysteries of this universe one of these days. Right. Good. Nothing like a good debate, you guys. So, all right. Well, Thomas, right, another good show in the in the books. Yeah. Rod's a great guy to debate with. He knows his stuff, and he, like I said, he gets me scratching my head. Yeah, the biggest he thing definitely about does. I think I have is, is the, the experience. I'm an experiencer, and I've experienced this stuff, and that's what gets me going because uh, there's got to be an answer for it. It's not in classical science, I don't think. So. Where do you Absolutely. reside now, Ron? Do you reside in Washington now, or are you still in California? Yeah, I'm, in, I'm in Squim, right across the channel from you guys. From, from okay, right okay. Squim, Squim Washington, right. yeah. Right there. Roger that. All right. Well, listen, guys, thanks for an excellent show. And, um, again, you guys need to hop on to Amazon and grab you up a Quantum Bigfoot book by Ron Moorhead. Um, wow. I, I definitely have mine already purchased. And uh, we look forward to another show with On the Shoulders of Giants with Thomas Steenberg. And uh, we appreciate you all tuning in and let us know what you thought about the show you can always uh, shoot us an email at julie.wrench at yahoo.com if you have any questions or comments thank you all for listening